All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, second book of the Bible. As we continue to work our way through this book, we're going to look today at commandments four and five. Let's set the context and review so that we can get ready for those two commandments. Children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and now God has delivered them. We saw uh, earlier on that they were in this land up here called Goshen. That's where they had been for 430 years. And now God has delivered them from slavery. He took them through the Red Sea, about right in this area, and eventually going to take them to the Promised Land up in Canaan. But it's amazing, isn't it, how God sometimes takes us on different paths than we would expect. And so while the Promised Land's north, God takes the children of Israel south, desert of sin, desert of Sinai, and right now they are encamped before Mount Sinai. They've been on their journey now for 90 days. During that time, they they have seen God at work uh, delivering them from uh, Egypt with the plagues. They saw Him open the Red Sea. He's given them food and manna every day, and He's provided water for them. And now God is getting ready. He's giving them instruction. He said, from all the people in the world, could have chosen anyone, but I chose you. And here are the instructions that I want you to live by. You're my people. I love you with with an everlasting love. And here are the instructions that I have for you. Ten Commandments were given in three parts, or the law, rather, was given in three parts. You have the civil law. We saw this last time. The civil law that deals with the day-to-day laws. The, for, for our day, it'd be, the, it'd be the speed limit signs, the zoning uh, laws that we have, all the things that you put a community together with, the civil laws of Israel. Then you have the ceremonial laws, that how you worship the the, uh, the sacrifices you brought, how you were to bring those sacrifices, the religious law of the day, then the moral law. The civil law, as we come to the New Testament, now believers are from every nation, race, and tongue, right? So you're living in a certain country, and so you adhere to the civil law of that country. So the civil law we don't see in the New Testament. Ceremonial law The sacrifices system of the Old Testament is now fulfilled in Jesus. He becomes a one-time-for-all-time sacrifice, so the ceremonial law Jesus fulfills. But you still have the moral law. The moral law goes from the New Old Testament through to the New Testament, and that's the law that we live under. The law, then, is given in the Ten Commandments, or sometimes the Greek word is the Decalogue, the Ten Words, and it's given in what's called two tablets. The first tablet, or the first part, uh, commandments one through four, and it deals with our relationship to God. We can think of the first four commandments as vertical. The second, the second table, the last six commandments, are horizontal, deal with our relationship to others. Now, it's important for us to remember that whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the law was never, the law was never given to allow us to be able to earn a relationship with God. Whether the Old Testament or New Testament, the basis of salvation has always been grace, all right? It's a gift. You can't earn it. Again, whether you're Old Testament or New Testament. 
The means of salvation is always faith. Genesis, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as right. Not Abraham adhered all the laws, he followed all the laws, but he believed. The means is always faith, and the object is always what or who? It's always Jesus. If you're in the Old Testament, you're looking forward to the coming Messiah, the anointed one. In Hebrew, the word Messiah. In Greek, the word Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. In the Old Testament, you're looking forward to the promise of God. He's going to send the Messiah. In the New Testament, what are you doing? You're looking back at Christ. The Messiah has come. So again, grace is always the basis, faith is always the means, and Jesus is always the object of our salvation. So if that's the case, then what's the purpose of the law? Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. You cannot earn a relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot do it by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become what? Conscious of our sin. The law is our tutor. The law is our teacher, and it is a great teacher, isn't it? The law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you say, that's a pretty tall order. I don't think I can do that. And God says, exactly. You need Savior. The law says, uh, don't murder. And then Jesus says, but if you just think angry thoughts or you want some person dead, that's that constitutes murder. And you say, that's a tall order because I know my thoughts sometimes are not where they should be. And God says, exactly. You need a Savior. It's the law that keeps us conscious of sin. Now, the law still is there. It's the moral law. It's what we strive for, but as we're striving for it, it reminds us, you can't do this on your own. So the law does three things. It reminds us of our sinfulness. It reminds us of our need for a Savior. And it reminds us of our need for God's enabling power in our life. We can't do this without the Holy Spirit giving us everything we need to do what God's calling us to do, right? You agree with that? All right, so the first command... Wait, wait, did you, did you agree with that? I didn't hear anyone. Okay. First commandment, no God but God. No other gods before me. Second commandment, don't worship the true God in the wrong way. Third commandment, don't treat God's name in a frivolous way. Don't take God's name in vain. And we come today to the fourth commandment, Genesis... Exodus, rather, chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all the work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, nor animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that was in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, let's think about that. Throughout the Old Testament and the New, church history, there have been a lot of debate on this fourth commandment. The word Sabbath or Hebrew Sabbat uh, means 
seventh day and incumbent in the Word is the idea of, of rest, a time of rest. Now, the Jews took this commandment and it said, on the Sabbath, you can't work. So they had to define what it meant to work and to ensure that they didn't work on the Sabbath, they had originally 39 clarifications of what it meant to work. So for instance, on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, you could not carry objects equal to or heavier than a dried fig. Okay? How much does a dried fig weigh? And no idea. But don't carry anything equal to or heavier than that. You can pick up your child, but before you pick up your child, make sure he or she doesn't have anything in their hands, because if they are carrying something, now you have worked and broken the Sabbath. I I like this one. You can't walk a thousand, you can only walk a thousand yards from your home, okay? The rabbi said, only a thousand yards from your home. However, if you put a string at the end of your street, a rope, and another rope at the end of the other part of your street. Think about your street, you got two ropes, right? That in enclosure now becomes the definition of a house. And so you can walk a thousand yards from the rope. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It's amazing how you can get by some of these. Later, laws were added when some technology came. This is an important one. You can't wear false teeth on the Sabbath. <laughs> and, and here's why. There's a good reason for it. If they fell out of your mouth, you'd be tempted to pick them up. All right? And that's true. You would be tempted to pick them up. Now, Christians took this law and they've done some interesting things with it. There are some believers who are called Sabbatarians. They still meet on Saturday. Others meet on Sunday. We'll explain why in a little bit. But they take the same laws, the same legalism, and apply it to Sunday. I grew up in a church like that. We had all, In our church manual, we had all kinds of things we could not do. And on Sunday, there was a whole list of things you couldn't do. And two, I, and I, there was a whole list. Two, I remember, you were not supposed to read the newspaper, and you weren't supposed to go bowling on Sunday. I, I never knew why you, that was in there. You had no bowling on Sunday. But, you know, every Sunday, what you wanted to do? You wanted to go bowling, right? You wanted a Chick-fil-A sandwich and go bowling, and you, you couldn't have either. So, so for many, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, the Sabbath became a days of don'ts. So let's, just, let's, see what, let's see what it means. One of the things we see in this command is called the, the Genesis rhythm. Look at uh, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, sea and all that's in them, and then He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and He made it holy. Now, two things there. When God blessed... The seventh day, when he 
went through the Genesis rhythm, when he rested in Genesis, he did that apart from man. And early on, he does not give that instruction to Adam or Eve. He doesn't give that instruction to Noah. He doesn't get that instruction to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. In fact, the first time we get any hint that there's going to be something special about the seventh day is in Exodus 16, as we've gone through the book. Remember, God uh, provides manna, and He says, you go pick it up every morning, what you need, but then on the sixth day, what? You get twice as much because I don't want you going out on the seventh day. If you go out, there's not going to be any there. Seventh day, that's the first hint we get something is going to be special about this seventh day. God rested on that seventh day, and you were to rest too. Now, let's talk about what it means to rest. Well, if God rested on the seventh day, we know for sure it doesn't mean that He was tired, right? Six days of creating, exhausted Him, and He had to take a break on day seven. That's not it. So what does the word Sabbath mean? Well, it means it means completion. It means cessation from work. It means it means holiness. God commemorated the completion of His perfect work. So when God rested, it simply means this: He was saying, "Everything I made is done. Everything I made is good. It is perfect." So. The Genesis rhythm then, the Sabbath rest, indicates a perfect peace between God and His creation. In Genesis 2, there is a perfect peace between God and His creation. That's the Sabbath. That's the rest, that peace. Now, that's Genesis 2. What comes after Genesis 2? Genesis 3, right? Every time. And in Genesis 3... Sin comes, and sin destroys this Sabbath. Sin destroys the peace that exists between God and His creation, the rest that exists between God and His creation. So if we just had Genesis 2, then we would have this beautiful story of of Sabbath rest. The rest of history would have been Sabbath rest, all eternity. But because of Genesis 3, the fall, now we got a problem. And so the rest of history becomes the story not of rest, but of redemption of Jesus who restores the rest for eternity. And it's only through Jesus that we find that rest. I won't take time uh, to check to uh, read this, but, but jot down uh, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is with His disciples. You remember the story? They're going through the grain field. They are hungry. It's, it's the Sabbath, and they pick some grain, and the Pharisees say, you just broke the law. What are you doing? You're supposed to, you're supposed to be this man of God, and you just broke the law. And it's through that passage that he re, Jesus reminds them that David went into the temple and got some consecrated food, and Jesus gives these Old Testament examples. But then he says, at the end of that, uh, Matthew 12, 12, he says, I am what? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
I am the one who ushers in. I am the one who brings rest. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be studying Hebrews beginning actually in February. A rich book that just ties, amazingly ties the Old Testament uh, into the New. And here's what the writer says. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. What's the writer saying? For the people of God, for those who belong to God, there's not one day a week that you don't do a lot of stuff, and that's your rest. You enter into the Sabbath rest. You cease from your works. See, the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament is a picture of, of Jesus and what He does for us. And so Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Not just one day a week, but what? Every day of our life, every moment of our lives. Perfect peace, Genesis 2, separation from sin, and now restored in Jesus, who is our Sabbath rest. Ten Commandments, right? Every one of them is repeated in the New Testament that Jesus fulfilled them. We're still to live by them. They're still our standard. They're still our teacher. Except one is not repeated in the New Testament. Which one is it? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Why? Because Jesus fulfills it. So when we're following Jesus, when we trusted in Christ alone as the only way to have rest, when we've ceased from our works, then we, 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 are, we are adhering to the fourth commandment. As believers, we're adhering to the fourth commandment every day of our lives. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. That make sense? Okay. Good. Are you sure? Okay. First four commandments, our relationship with God. It's interesting that it ends with the Sabbath rest because that's where the, that's Jesus. That's the fulfillment. Uh, five through ten deal with horizontal relationship with others. And it should be no surprise that this one, this part starts with honor your father and your mother. Look at uh, chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So here's a commandment that deals with the most important relationship we have on earth. I say important because that's the relationship that gives us life. We wouldn't be here without our mom and our dad. That's the relationship that uh, forms so much of our personality. That's a relationship from a human perspective that has so much impact, preferably spiritual impact, on our lives. Now, I know for some of you, when you hear this commandment, you say, no-brainer. Man, I love my mom and dad. Uh, they, they, you know, they weren't perfect, but they were, they were godly individuals. They cared for me. I, I experienced unconditional love. I love my mom and dad. Certainly, I'd honor them. Others would say, you know, well, 
I, I knew they loved me. I know they loved me, but I tell you what, they were tough. Um, I never really got unconditional love. I kind, kind of got it that they loved me, but, but man, I tell you what, um, I, you know, nothing I did was ever good enough. If I had an A, it should have been an A+. Plus. If I did well in, on the athletic field, I could have done better. And I, I, I get it, but, but they were rough. Still others have a, a huge issue with this command. When, when, when you think of your parents, or at least one of them, you know emotional abuse, physical abuse, neglect, desertion. One of them took off. Alcoholism, some addiction, and the list goes on. And you wonder, you know, time out. How in the world? With sovereign God, who knows the hell I've lived through, how would sovereign God expect me to keep this commandment? Let's think through what the commandment means. The word honor literally means to be heavy or, or weighty. It's like putting something on a scale and, 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 it, and it tips the scale. It's heavy. It's weighty. Therefore, if it tips the scale, it's a value. So when we take the literal into the figurative, it means to respect someone or something, to value, to, to place dignity on. When I, hold, when I honor someone, they carry weight uh, in my life. I hold them in, in esteem. Every parent, every parent is due that respect. Whatever your situation, every parent is due that respect, not because of who they are, but what? But because of who God is. I want to say that again. Regardless of what comes to your mind when you think of your mom and dad, this commandment still stands, not because of who your parents are, but because of who God is is the sovereign creator who makes no mistakes ordained their position in your life as a mother or a father. He had to work with imperfect people. But when you honor your parents, you are honoring God. Romans chapter 13 it's a passage that, that Paul writes, and, and it's directed to governing authorities. <clears throat> but the principle can be extrapolated uh, through the authority of our parents as well. Paul <clears throat> is writing when Nero, who was an evil man, was on the throne of the Roman Empire. Still, Paul says, Romans 13.1, let everyone be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has what? Established. There is no authority in your life except that which God has established. The authorities that exist, just in case we missed it, Paul's going to repeat it. The authorities that exist have been what? Established by God. Now, specifically, that's referring to 
governing authorities. But the, the broader application of that principle is every authority in your life has been placed there by God. So when you honor your mom and your dad, you're honoring God who ordained that authority in your life. I know that's hard for some of you. So important was this commandment <clears throat> that if you disobeyed it, it cost you your life. Look at chapter 21, verse 15. Whoever, anyone who attacks his father and mother must be what? Put to death. Pretty serious. Anyone who curses his father and mother, this is verse 17, 21, 17. Anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. And then you say, well, wait, what time out? Why would God put such a stringent consequence on that sin? Well, bottom line is, God is saying, if you can't handle the authority of your parents, you can't handle authority, period. If you have your parents, God-ordained, and you can't handle their authority, and in Israel, and you know the consequences, you know you're going to be stoned if you disobey them, and you disobey them anyway. God says that's a rebellious person that is going to be a cancer to the nation of Israel. So in the Old Testament, they're put to death. Very strange. Such is the weight of this command. Let's make some applications here. Let me talk, first of all, to elementary and teenagers. Got a few out there? Okay? All across our campuses, a few elementary and teenagers, let me talk to you. The command is very clear, isn't it? Children, obey your parents. I heard of a dad who went on a business trip. He had five kids. He went on a business trip. He decided to do something. He went on the, after he got back from the trip, he, he brought back one toy. And he got his five kids together and he said, okay, here's the deal. I got one toy. While I've been away. Who has been the most obedient? You get the toy. Who's listened to mommy? You get the toy. Who does everything mommy says? You get the toy. And five voices in unison said, Daddy, you play with the toy. It's yours. <clears throat> but fathers aren't the only ones that should be obedient, all right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in the things you would like to obey them in, right? Everything. For this pleases the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life. That's not guaranteed. That's just saying a rebellious person, probably isn't going to live a long life, generally speaking. Obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord doesn't mean obey your Christian parents. In the Lord means obey your parents in the things that agree with the instruction of the Lord. So, for instance, if your parent says you cannot follow Jesus Christ, that's a 
that said, God's law usurps that. You can follow Christ. If your parent says, I need you to go steal something or go murder someone, you can say, now, time out, I'm not going to do that. God's law usurps that. Your parents in the Lord honor your father and your mother. You should obey your parents because God commands it. They are not perfect, but they are God's representatives, and they love you, and they desire the best for you. And how you handle, still talking to elementary and and teenagers, how you handle your parents' authority will be a really good indicator of how you're going to handle a teacher's authority, a coach's authority, college professor's authority, a boss's authority. A person who had trouble with authority at home has a trouble with authority, period. And it's something you got to deal with. Second, we're to honor our parents in the mature years of their life. Now, for sure, uh, Genesis uh, 2, 24, that passage on marriage that, that Christ repeats in the Gospels and Paul repeats uh, in uh, his letter to the Ephesians says, you got to leave your father and your mother. And so you do that. There's an emotional break. Now your husband or your wife, that's the relationship. That's the most important relationship in your life. However, you can still have that emotional break and honor your father and your mother in their mature years. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. And some of you are going through that. You have aging parents, and you are honoring them by the way you're taking care of them. They are not usurping the relationship with your husband and wife. That's a problem if that's happening, but you are honoring them. And by the way, this commandment applies to your in-laws. Don't make it hard for your spouse to honor their parents. If you're not married yet, i got to tell you something. I think you know this. I hope you know this. But if you don't, when you marry someone, it's a package deal. You marry a family. And if you dishonor your spouse's parents, you're breaking commandment number five. You're making it hard for your spouse to obey commandment five. You're making it hard for your children, their grandchildren, to respect them because you're dogging them all the time. Let me, let me put it in another way. Some of you are on a second marriage, right? So there are ex-spouses. That ex-spouse is a mother of children or a father of the children. You dog them, you're breaking this commandment. You're not helping that. You're not allowing, you're not encouraging your kids to honor their mom or their dad. But he left me. I know. But God placed that authority in their lives. Last one, if we are to honor our father and mother, then the converse is true, right? We should be parents worthy of honor. 
Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3, 1, or 3, 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now, it's, I know this is tough. <clears throat> we have dreams and aspirations for our kids, and there's this fine line between expectation and exasperation. This fine line between pushing them to be all they can be and embittering them. And you gotta, you got to be praying about that. we got to be praying about that. I got to tell you, uh, with our kids growing up, I, I blew it many, many times. In fact, uh, on our website, BibleChapel.org, I put a blog on there that is a story of me blowing it, disobeying these two verses with our oldest daughter, Brittany, over a, over a stupid girls' recreational softball game. And you can read it, my part first, and then she tells her part. And uh, it's emotional every time I read that story. How would I, why was I such a jerk over that softball game? But I broke these two. So learn from my mistakes on that. We, we are to live as godly examples. St. Augustine said that his mother Monica labored more for his spiritual birth than his natural birth. Are you praying fervently for your children? Spiritual input we give our children cannot be replaced. And what we don't give our children, they can find no place else. And that's why I can still meet with men in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s. Their dad's been dead for 30 years, and they are still trying to please their father. One writer calls it a father wound. Just sticks in there. So we got parents. We got to be. We've got to be those who are worthy of honor, who love our kids unconditionally, who pray for them. So that so that this commandment is not a real hard one for them. It's that no-brainer, like we were talking about earlier. So I know that some of you have gone through some challenging times. And I know that some of you still, uh, you, you say, Ron, you can talk all you want, but you didn't live in my house. And you don't know how hurt I am. You don't know what it's like to constantly be beat down. You don't know what it's like to be abused. You're right. I don't. But I do know this. The bitterness that you hold inside will eat you alive. And the, and the, and the punishment you're trying to put on someone else is, is, is a poison that you're just poisoning your soul. So I'm pleading with you for forgiveness. Let that spouse, let that mom or dad know forgive you. I got to move on with my life. So when I came to the Bible Chapel years ago, there was a couple 
here family going through an extremely difficult time. The wife had been, had been married, two sons, and um, the father had died. And she remarried, had two more children, and the guy she remarried was, um, said he was a believer, maybe he was, certainly he was broken, and um, he uh, abused uh, her in front of the kids. And uh, the two older boys, the stepchildren, stepsons, they just, they harbored an, a bitterness and an anger that was deep. And the younger kids were, were deeply impacted emotionally. She stayed in that marriage as long as she could. And um, finally, she had to separate. And she separated because she was afraid. Now her boys were getting older, and she was afraid. She was literally afraid that either he would kill one of them or they would kill him because the anger was, was so bad. I, I remember after they separated, there was a PFA, uh, you know, for their protection and all that. And, and I remember coming to church one day, and an elder, I had just gotten here, and there was an elder uh, standing outside the church door, and this guy was trying to come to church, and he wouldn't let him in the building because we were protecting that, that family. So that went on for years, and all the stuff that goes with that. After a lot of years, protection and separation and tough words back and forth, the, the man, now ex-husband, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And by God's grace, only by God's grace, this family ministered to him during his illness. And they were at his bedside when he passed away. I asked this individual to, to write about that. And here's what she said. During that time, I witnessed each of my four children reaching out to him and saw amazing forgiveness by, my, by his two stepsons. It went as far as words of love to him. During that time, God opened my ex-husband's heart. He truly was a troubled saint, a broken man. Basically, we gave my ex-husband, uh, basically, we uh, uh, forgave my ex-husband and served him, though the world would say he deserved what he was getting. We said, hey, not but for God's mercy would we be a child of God. If God showed us His mercy, then we can show mercy to this man who's dying. We didn't deserve mercy, but God sure gave us mercy through His Son. This individual sent me the email and, and um, also sent the email to one of her sons who responded in a text. I wanted to read what he said. He said in the text, he said, Mom, I didn't honor him. I wanted to kill him. It wasn't until I matured in my faith and was not under his control anymore that I was able to see him from God's eyes. Forgiving him as Christ forgave me removed the rage. And some of you are there today, aren't you? Forgiving him as Christ forgave me removed the ridge 
and allowed me to see the broken, hurting man he was. And then to witness, this son writes, then to witness the greatest example of love I've ever seen, my mother taking care of her ex-husband, my stepfather, on his deathbed and watching God work on this man's heart again. To see my mother loving and caring for the father to the end. Mom, the value in watching this cannot be measured. In fact, it impacted everyone that's ever known our family. Now, that's a powerful story, isn't it? It's a story of God's grace. Paul instructed the Ephesians, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other because they deserve it. Forgive them just as in Christ, what? God forgave you and God forgave me. Today, for some of you, time to put it down in it and be released from the prison of bitterness and unforgiveness so that you can really serve God, understanding His grace and His freedom. Let's pray together. Father, do Your work in our hearts. Do what only You can do, showing forgiveness, giving forgiveness and showing mercy is hard. We can't do it on our own. Lord, we need your help to let it go and forgive another person just like you have forgiven us. That's our prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.